We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to the podcast today, we have a fan favorite. And yes, you still do need to get that tattoo. Mr. Jordan Harper, one of my dearest friends, this podcast's very first guest and my Pandemic Movie Club and Game Night Crew buddy. Jordan is the Edgar Award winning author of She Rides Shotgun, Love and Other Wounds, The Last King of California releasing in September in the UK, and Everybody Knows, which will be available everywhere in 2023. Additionally, a screenwriter and producer of such shows as The Mentalist, Gotham, and Hightown, Jordan crafted one of the most beautiful pilots for LA Confidential, which CBS stupidly did not pick up, but was so acclaimed that he screened and did a virtual panel on the show at the ATX TV Festival a Missouri native, and yes, that will come up later today in our conversation. Jordan currently lives in LA along with his talented screenwriter girlfriend, Megan Moston-Brown, and adorable dog, Elroy. Jordan, thank you so much for being here and coming back on the pod. I always have the best time with you. How are you doing and how's summer treated you this year? Uh, Thanks for having me. It's always so much fun and so much fun to hear you read that introduction. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, that's what I come for. Um, you know, it's, it's been a weird summer, you know, I had, had a tooth extracted, had human cadaver bones put inside me, uh, found a corpse. Yeah, exactly. Found found a corpse. Um, you know, uh, a little bit of a stomach bug. It's, you know, the world's coming for me, but I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm taking it on. Yeah, you know, Jordan, he he likes to pretend he's this super tough dude. He writes the grittiest stuff ever. But I just met him in person finally a few weeks ago. And I talked about this on Twitter. He's also like the sweetest, nicest person you would ever hope to meet. And uh, when I was there, my hotel was like, you know, the Arctic Circle. It was freezing. I shut off the AC in LA and just could not stop shivering. 
And Jordan took me to Target, but he didn't do the thing like guys do where they're like, I'm going to wait in the car or as soon as you walk in, like, I'm just going to wait and you do your thing. He came with me to the women's department, you know, helped me get that cardigan picked out. And, you know, Jordan is a hell of a good shopping buddy, too. So I got to say, you know, you're well-rounded. I, I have enough confidence in my masculinity to step inside the women's section. I'm not. Yes. I'm nothing not afraid bad of that. is going to happen to you. Yeah. No, I. Uh, might color your work. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I have two things within, uh, reaching distance of me right now that I did not mean to like kind of have in reaching distance, but, um, this is the bear from she Ride shotgun. Yes. And, and, uh, this one I did bring out is this is a knife that my grandfather, uh, made from the Ozarks. From the Ozarks. So it's like, you know, I got, I got layers and, um, the sweet and the tough. Yes. And, uh, yeah, the the knife. Yeah, the, I'll talk about that when we talk about Winter's Bone. But um, yeah, it was great to see you. Welcome to LA and all that. We had a, a great uh, meal oh, no. at at Prime uh, Pizza with the gang. Yeah, uh, Rob Belushi's Prime Pizza there in Burbank. Mm-hmm. He's one of the investors. Yes. Yes. And- so fun. Yeah. Our buddy Travis Woods came and he was joking that Rob is essentially like an Italian grandma who wants to feed you and make sure that you're getting enough food and then sends you home with food. And that's Rob. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and uh, we have gone there since uh, me and, and Travis and, and his friend Danny Manning. And uh, we have uh, continued to just eat tremendous amounts of uh food that's a prime pizza for Burbank people get there Um, exactly it was delicious yeah yeah. I'm gonna have to go back just for the pizza and also Mm -hmm. the company but you know mainly the pizza no I'm just kidding famous pizza town Los Angeles but uh (laughs) absolutely well, speaking as both a friend and also a fan of your writing, because I dug your work before I even quote unquote met you on social media, I am so proud and excited about the release of the two novels that you finished during the height of the pandemic, The Last King of California, which is what brings you here today. And everybody knows I was honored to read early drafts of both books, and they're both absolute knockouts, everyone, and so different from one another in subject, style, and approach. For those listening who might not have caught up with earlier shows where you discuss them, and also because it's awesome to have a refresher to these great works, why don't you give us an overview of these novels? I'll have you back, or everybody knows, of course, so you don't have to go into too much detail about that. But I'd love to hear you talk about your influences and your intent on The Last King of California. Yeah, um, The Last King of California. Well, first of all, just real quickly, I'll do Everybody Knows. Everybody Knows comes out in the U.S. in January of 2023. So not that far from now. It's my kind of big, epic L.A. crime novel set right now. Uh, It's uh, got its obvious Elroy component to it that came out of me doing the L.A. Confidential pilot uh, and then not going to series and having all this Elroy energy that I had to put someplace and I chose to, instead of doing a, a 50s or even 80s Elroy novel, I decided yeah. to do one set right now. So it's big. It's got lots of different elements of modern LA, everything from like sheriffs, gangs to, um, you know, black bag publicists who don't get the the good news out to keep the bad news in. And yes. there's a homeless camp bomber. There are literally over a hundred true life uh, scandals and rumors that I have weaved into this story 
some of them will be familiar to people. Some of them will only be familiar to people who are in the know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm very excited to unleash that on the world. But, um, the last King of California is a novel that has been cooking for a very long time. It is in some ways a follow-up to She Rides Shotgun. Uh, it takes place in the world of She Rides Shotgun in the aftermath, although the main characters, uh, do not appear in this book. It's, uh, just about the, uh, the aftermath after, uh, Polly and, and her father, Nate, have destroyed more or less uh, Aryan Steel. And, and this is about Aryan Steel uh, on the come up. But it's not about them. It, it's really the my uh, like Hollywood pitch version of it is it's the Seven Samurai. If uh, the farmers uh, were a bunch of uh, meth cooks and car thieves, the bandits coming to rob them were the Aryan Steel and uh, the the samurai who are coming to town to save them was one uh, skinny 19-year-old kid who doesn't know if he has it in him or not to become a criminal like his family is. And, you know, I, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll talk about this more later too. I think I haven't intentionally modeled my novels after samurai movies, uh, but it just kind of keeps happening. She Rides Shotgun is, is obviously connected to Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, and I think that, you know, this is a seven samurai style. If you read it, I don't think a lot of people would notice that it was the seven samurai. It's not Mm-mm. structured that way. And, uh, it is so much about, um, Tyler, uh, who is at the center of the story that I, I don't think people would notice that, that I was working in that. But I do think that there is, is some kind of connection between, uh, the, the rules of, of samurai films and, uh, the rules of crime in the Ozarks. Uh, the last King of California is set in California, but all of my knowledge of, of white trash criminals and gangsters comes from my, uh, yeah. growing up in the Ozarks. And so a lot of, while I try to stay true to the region of, uh, San Bernardino and, uh, the Inland Empire, I, you know, when I write about white trash, that's kind of what I write about are, mm-hmm. are the, are the Ozarks and, and sort of clan based, uh, behavior and, uh, so it's you know it was it was a novel that went through a lot of different revisions and uh, permutations and it's coming out um, in a couple of weeks in in the United Kingdom and uh, everyone and its protectorates I guess you would say like Australia and whatnot uh, through Simon and Schuster. Um, if you're in America, it seems like the best way to get it is through the book depository. Um, okay, great. Which the book depository, which I just learned about when other people would suggest it to me when people would ask how they could get this book um, is a website that I guess is owned by Amazon um, where okay. they, they do international shipping on all sorts of books. And um, very cool. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's, yeah, the last King of California is it's a little more, if I had to name my influences, it's more Cormac McCarthy than it is James Elroy. Um, there's a lot of Kim Nunn's tapping the source that I think people could see in there. There's, there's some winter's bone, for sure. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and it's a it's a darker, more literary novel than some of my other work. It is. Uh, and that might be why it is not at the moment coming out in the US. Uh, it will someday, even if I end up self-publishing it, which might be what I end up doing. Um, but I, I don't know yet. But it, it's still going to be available. I mean, we live in the 2022. If, if you're really interested in the book, uh, wherever you are, you, you'll be able to get it. Yeah, the writing is very spare, but very exact, lyrical, um, very visceral. And I love if you've kept the ending that I remember reading the last chapter from the point of view of a female character is one of 
the most beautiful things I think that Jordan has written. So that that is still the end of the book. Okay, amazing. So yes, it. I know. I'm not saying who or what, so I, I don't think I spoiled anything, but yes. I will say that it is just staggeringly great, gorgeous writing by Jordan. Thank yes. you so much. Um, the only other thing I, I would add to it, because I think um, it, it's sort of where I'm at in crime fiction right now, is uh, I, I put in the wildfires, wildfires of California into the book because I think it's pretty important for crime fiction, particularly crime fiction written by men right now, uh, needs to start living in the 21st century. I think um, we, and I include myself in this, often have a backward glance towards, you know, the era when men were men. And, and, yeah, or, that's or, true. Even if it's set now, I, I feel like we're not often really engaging with the moment. There, there mm -hmm. are real exceptions to that. Um, it of just course. got my, my uh, copy of Something Bad Wrong by Eric Pruitt. Uh, okay. which I, I read in uh, an earlier draft. And he's definitely working towards that while staying in his grit lit roots. And, and there are people doing it. Um, but I, I just, it was important to me to put something about the 21st century and, and into the, this book. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when we were talking about doing a tie in episode crime families, and we're talking about blood families, not mafia crime families, was an idea you came up with almost instantly because it is kind of the overarching spine of that novel, how these characters are linked to this horror that they grew up in as they were born into it and around it. Can you escape? Should you? Does it do more harm than good? What do you owe to yourself and those closest to you? There's all these questions that are raised both in your book and the three movies that we're going to be talking about today in the form of At Close Range, Animal Kingdom, that's the 2010 film version, and Winter's Bone. Obviously, we'll go deeper into the movies one by one in just a moment. Before we do that, talk to me about the way that the idea of crime families makes narrative work so compelling. Well, you know, um, we sort of live in an era where, at least in most art, God is dead. And it seems to me that in an era where God is dead, the only fate we have left is families. And uh, particularly in crime fiction, which is often takes place in a world outside of the state, or, mm -hmm. or at least with the state held at a remove, family becomes sort of the, you know, the great uh, signifier, the great thing that will like um, control and, and remove the action. I mean, in one of these films, particular uh, character barely has any agency at all and just is a pinball machine inside his family. Um, yeah. but, you know, I think family tends to inspire uh, two things that often stand in opposition to each other. And I think you see that in all these movies, uh, mostly in Winter's Bone, but in all of them, is which is um, duty and love. Yes, um, very true. Which are, are two things that, um, when things are going well, act in harmony with each other and mm -hmm. acts to... Uh, to reinforce each other, but when things go wrong, it, it's a source of tension that you can see. And I'm going to reference Antigone later, and we can talk about. I was going to say, yeah, we, it gets very Greek here. Yeah. Yes, um, and I think there's, a, I think that's the reason for it. Is even in a world where they believe in the fates and they believe in gods, there's always that element of the family uh, having so much, you know, whether you believe it's nature or nurture that that shapes a person. Both those things for most people come from their family as their primary yeah. thing. And mm -hmm. in crime fiction, and you know, you're right to 
to differentiate between mafia families, which are based on a completely different structure, which I, yeah. are, you know, hierarchical and based on Roman soldiers and things exactly. like that. that. This is like a clan based uh, way of behaving most of the time. Um, mm -hmm. And again, you know, it, it's, it's a world that uh, I just, it, I think everybody, first of all, to be really blunt about it, everybody has a family. Yes. Um, even if you're an orphan, that is a, the absence of a family fills that same yeah. gap of, of yep. being a family. And I've always said, you know, to me, the appeal of crime fiction is, is that for me, I want to take human emotions and put them in a world that is more technicolor, more exciting than the one we live in, but still tell these very deep human stories. And everybody, uh, you know, has some kind of issue with their mother or father, or, mm -hmm. you know, have some kind of desire to transcend their family or escape their family or, or just serve their family and, and, and then find out that they can't for reasons. And, and so all these things are going to resonate with people, um, on, on some level. And it's just, a, it's, it's an, a very interesting place to be. And, um, it feels like it's a, I mean, I'm sure we could have found one urban crime family that wasn't mafia related. Um, I tried to think, you know, uh, uh of one, and I tried to think of a good James gang, a movie that we could have watched. Oh, true. Yeah. Um, you know, The Long Riders was the only one I could think of that sort of felt like it might be a family crime drama, even that one. Yeah, Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford isn't isn't It's really, not what we're talking no, about. Exactly. Here, yeah. That's what I was going to say. I mean, it's a different conversation to have. Yes. Exactly. And yeah. uh and uh, no, I mean even like in that one, uh yeah, cuz it's it's later era Jesse yes. James. So Frank isn't in it. You don't really meet his mother because mm -hmm. that when they were fully the James gang and like when the Pinkertons were coming in to Missouri and being killed by second cousins of the James gang, just on the, you know, on the road, that's, that's sort of what we're talking about here. But, yeah. um, but I don't know about a movie that really covers that period of, of, of Jesse James's life. So. No. And family and crime is also very important to you. It's kind of your, to use the phrase, origin story of when you were young and learning about your own family's history. Do you want to tell everyone? Oh, well, yeah. In uh, 1931, uh, in Springfield, Missouri, there was a shootout between two brothers, the young brothers, uh, and 10 policemen who came out to arrest them for car theft. And one of those... Ten policeman was my great granduncle Ollie Crosswhite, who had been fired from the police force because he was a Democrat and the Republicans had taken over and fired all the Democrats. But they needed a few extra hands sure. because uh, the the young brothers were known to be dangerous, and they went out um, to arrest these two brothers. And each of the cops had like a six shooter with six bullets in it. They didn't bring any real extra ammunition. They brought no. a couple of tear gas grenades. And the two brothers had a, a shotgun and a rifle and they decided they weren't going to be taken uh, peacefully and open fire and ended up killing seven policemen, uh, including my great granduncle Ollie. And, uh, and it's been known as the young brothers massacre ever since. And so uh, my great grandfather, who was Ollie's brother and he was a prison guard yes. uh, paid local uh, reporters at least he helped pay for uh, a dime store novel sort of true crime book to be written about the young brothers massacre, which was a book I started reading when I was six years old. Um, That's amazing. And, yeah. And, uh, and I, I really do see a lot of my work coming out of, out of that, particularly since that was my great grandfather who paid for it. I might've just misstated that. And then my grandfather who was also a prison guard, which was 
the guy who made uh, this knife yes. uh, was also the guy who taught me about Jesse James and Doc Holliday and gave me chewing tobacco, I believe, in the same place that we see it in Winter's Bone when they're at the cattle. Place. Oh, that's wow. That's I think incredible. that's connected to okay. where I saw the rodeo for the first time. And um, and so, yeah, the the idea of this kind of uh, American mm -hmm. death song was what I, I my first collection when it was an independent book was called uh, American, American Death, death Songs. songs. And it was dedicated to Ollie Crosswhite and because that was the first death song I ever really learned was yeah. uh, that book. And so, yeah, this has always been, uh, all these things have always been very connected to me. Obviously you can see it in She Rides Shotgun. And, Which is dedicated to one of your relatives, correct? Um, yeah, I believe that's dedicated to my grandfather. Yes. Um, who made the knife. And, uh, and so like, this has always been, you know, like a part of, of, of who I grew up like he literally used to tell stories about when he was a kid and Bonnie and Clyde kidnapped the sheriff from his hometown and everybody whispered that the sheriff was a coward who just got in the <laughs> car and didn't fight back and like wow. um uh yeah uh, taught me to play poker fed me scrambled eggs and calves brains uh yeah the lore that you learned from your family you were talking about you know in the absence of God or something which is the storytelling or the scriptures that you learn, you learn these stories from your family and they shape who you are. I've seen um, Jordan has posted a picture of like an early, I don't remember if it was a novel, but there was a picture of like a porn theater or something you were drawing at age 10 or 11, something like that. Like he was writing crime that young. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I was in, I was in third grade, I think when I drew that and, uh, it was it was a triptych of of mob war stuff there that was go. Italian yes. mafia stuff. I clearly watched The Godfather uh, by <laughs> this point, and um, and uh, yeah, they, they I just made up Italian sounding names because I didn't know. That's right. I just like I took some Max vowels. Faster too. But, didn't you? So that's a different. That's I, a I wrote different. A, I wrote and it's a, not Italian. Sorry. No, that was a that was a secret agent book that I wrote around that time that was. <laughs> with the toughest name I'd ever heard, which I'd heard my mom say, which was Max Factor, um, <laughs> which I really do feel sounds more like a secret agent than it sounds a like makeup. Um, yeah. a makeup. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this has been the stuff that's always been interesting to me and has always been a, a big part of, of who I am. And um, well, you know, we'll get into the movie later. Uh, the, the book Winter's Bone, that's why it's so incredibly important to me. And, uh, and I do think it, uh, not to jump ahead, I think it's the best, uh, crime novel of the last 20 years. Wow. Uh, and um, when it's <laughs> when in like two years, it will be over 20 years old. It'll be the best crime novel of the last 25 years, unless somebody really steps up and, and does something. Uh, and that's a no knock to anybody else. It's just, I think it's a magnificent novel, but um, yeah, this stuff and in, in, in particularly this kind of clan based um, uh, family structure is very familiar to me. And uh, I, you know, uh, the last came of California, the family's named Crosswhite, which is my mother's maiden name. Uh, and while they are not meth cooks and car thieves, they are in some ways a clan in the old mm -hmm. Ozark sense of just like a very, very fiercely tight knit family that has a real in group out group feeling. Um, and, and, and it's just will circle around family so quickly. And, uh, and I, so I just grew up with that. And so it's always been very interesting to me and it's, it's a great place to set drama and it's a great place to, to kind of play in this world. So yeah, that's why, uh, you know, it felt like these were the movies to discuss for this book. 
I love that so much because when I was a teenager, like one of the first big novels that I wrote as a teenager was also this epic family crime novel. And I was taking our family name from Italy, which before they changed it when he came over here at Ellis Island, they always changed names. So I like worked that into the book. So I just love that so much. Yeah. Jordan and I would have been friends way back when. Definitely. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, kicking things off, we have our first film from 1986, one that I know is relatively new to you because I think I pushed you to see it either on a past podcast or in our pandemic movie club, maybe when we did Falcon and the Snowman. I don't remember. It's director James Foley's At Close Range, a neo-noir based on the real-life Pennsylvania crime family headed up by Bruce Johnston Sr., which ran during the 60s and 70s. The movie stars Christopher Walken as the chilling, duplicitous patriarch, as well as Sean and Chris Penn as his sons, along with Mary Stuart Masterson as Sean Penn's love interest, plus David Strathairn, Crispin Glover, Kiefer Sutherland, and Eileen Ryan. Scripted by Nicholas Kazan, based on a story by Kazan and Elliot Lewitt, and featuring Madonna's Live to Tell, the instrumental version plays throughout, then you hear the song in the credits. This critically acclaimed movie was a box office dud, but has grown in esteem over the years thanks to its quality and this killer cast. So what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, well, first of all, you're right. You were the person who got me to watch this movie for the first time a year or two ago. I can't yeah. remember. And um, I liked it the first time I watched it. I liked it a lot more this time. And I'm not yes. sure mm-hmm. what it was about the second watch. Um, I think it's... So that opening scene when, where uh, Sean Penn is driving around slowly, that's a Madonna song that's playing in the background? Yes. it's uh, Well, you hear Live to Tell over the credits, I think. Mm. Yeah, but the instrumental. Okay. Um, it's it's the, the dreaminess of it is, is really nice. Particularly, yeah. I, I really do love that opening scene where he's just driving around and checking out Mary Stuart Masterson. And um yeah. There are there are several little little moments like that in the film, and and you just have to really. Uh, it's more Christopher Walken's film in a lot of ways it really than it is. is Sean Penn's. Yep, and I think understanding that makes the movie uh, more pleasurable. It's 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 like you said, the cast is crazy. Kiefer Sutherland pops up, says like two lines. I know. Um, yep. Kristen <laughs> Glover is. is terrific and mm-hmm. so gross he really is yes he's just perfect in this yeah what a cast what yep. a cast and um you know you just keep uh tracy walter um who is uh in repo man is uh very famously in repo man right that is tr- am i mixing up two actors there mm-hmm. no i'm correct yeah yeah tracy walter is the uh is the long-haired uh, co-worker who is also does the famous uh, plate of shrimp uh, monologue in Repo Man. He also plays Jack Nicholson's right-hand man in, in uh, <laughs> Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, oh, okay. So just an A-grade Hollywood weirdo that when you see him, you're always glad to see him. And yeah. uh, just a lot of little things like that. Um, you know, it has an authenticity to it that is really nice. That uh, You know, the, the set deck is pretty you know, authentic. It just feels very lived in. And, and, uh, and then it, it's an interesting journey that it goes on uh, because Sean Penn 
uh, as this, you know, rambunctious young man, it's not clear what he wants out of life other than to just kind of have a normal life. Exactly. Um, yeah. And he, you know, th this is a case where the, this is not a, a pro family movie in a lot of ways, or at least no, you want him to get the hell out. Yes. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's not a, you know, the conflict is so externalized because, you know, he doesn't have, you know, he wants a father clearly yes. and, and, and he hates his, you know, whatever kind of live in boyfriend that are, uh, yeah, that his mother absolutely. has. Absolutely. He's trying to um, figure out what being a man means too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it's always great that it's this how many movies did Sean Penn and Chris Penn do together? Is this it or um that's a really good question. Probably uh, look. Chris Penn is as good as he ever has been, I think, in this. Movie. I loved Chris Penn in this. Yes. Yeah, they were so good together. Um yeah, it would be interesting to know how many movies they actually made together. But I think that dynamic really works well for this. This was kind of Sean Penn at the height of his powers yeah. um, in the early 80s because he was the one who basically went to bat to get James Foley um, chosen as director. I was reading an interview with James Foley this morning. I think it's the one our good friend Walter Chaw did actually years ago. Oh, cool where he was talking about Foley kind of got launched because Hal Ashby found him at a party. Like he was a film student. Ashby showed up because he had like a thing for this female student who was like a friend of Foley's who liked his friend. So it was like Ashby liked this girl, this girl liked this guy. And it was a whole thing. And uh, when Ashby walked in, his movie was being projected on a white wall, like a short film. Ashby saw it and just kind of was like, hey, I want to produce something you do and it was towards the tail end of his career so he didn't really have enough juice but just the fact that Ashby liked Foley was enough to help kind of get him that movie Reckless I think was his breakout or his first yeah. and he became friends with Sean Penn and Sean just said no you're the guy for this and wow yeah. um I think and I I can't remember if this was, I think, a part of it or what kickstarted it is I did do a pretty big uh, Sean Penn retrospective during yes. the pandemic. And yeah, this was put into it. Actually, no, I, I remember I watched the, the Brian De Palma documentary, uh, De Palma. Oh, and gotcha. they were talking about that terrible uh, De Palma movie with Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox. Um, Casualties of War? Casualties of War. I haven't uh, seen that since childhood. Yeah. Don't watch it. Yeah. Um, it was traumatizing then, of course. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, it's not good. And, uh, you know, but they, there's an anecdote about it, about Sean Penn. He hated that he was in a movie with Michael J. Fox and didn't consider him a real actor oh. and was a dick to him. And it would like whisper things like sitcom oh, actor yeah. to Michael J. Fox. And I hate that that made me go, you know, I should just watch a bunch of Sean Penn movies. <laughs> um, but it, but it did. And, and, you know, the, the fact of Sean Penn is that his, his assholishness and his, his brutishness as a part of his story. Um, and Helps that persona. Yeah. It does. Screen. Yeah. And this is, even though he is very, he's his, his, his arms are just sculpted in this movie. He's I know. Very, yeah. He's way too ripped to be playing a high school student. You're kind of like, where did he get those? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's juiced. <laughs> but, but this is one performance where he really does balance that, um, that like brutishness with like some real sensitivity and some, uh, some real pain that is, is he's a great actor. That's the thing about he him. He is. is. He's incredible. Yep. 
you know, he's not quite a movie star in the way that like, you know, to just be like really like Nicolas Cage, who I know that they have a yin and yang thing because they both like, you know, they made a movie together, Racing with the Moon. They respect each other or they did. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, as it went on, Sean Penn started to talk shit about Cage and his choices and blah, blah, blah. But Cage is a more instantly identifiable universal movie star. Uh, probably because he made all those Mike, Michael Bay movies and Penn was, no, he was, uh, yeah, wanting to stick to his guns in a different way. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I am sure. And I get that, it. But, sure. And, and yeah. you know, the I think part of it is if whether or not you need to be rich or you need to be super rich, because it's not like. That's um, true. Yeah. It's not like but, he's hurting. <laughs> no. And, you know, I, I don't know if you have ever, I picked up one of, uh, Sean Penn is famous enough to get a novel published. Yes. Even though the mm-hmm. novel is incomprehensible. And oh, I, is it? I have not uh, read it. No. I mean, just literally, if you go online and Google like samples of, of Sean Penn's novels, they are, he, you know, it's, <laughs> oh, no. it's, it's the work of somebody who doesn't get told no a lot, you know? Okay, gotcha. Um, that's and, too bad. Yeah, yeah, that's how I would put it. But, anyway, you know, this is, um, this is, is good. You know, he's, he's excellent in this. Um, Christopher Walken, his best performance? I don't know. What do you think? It might be. Yeah, actually, um, this was the performance that was singled out by Roger Ebert in his review, just how good he is playing someone just so hateful. When I was watching it this time, um, you know, it's still Christopher Walken. So he still does that thing where he goes in and he removes. He actually does this, you know, punctuation from his scripts because he wants to think these lines and say them how he believes they should be said and you can get that but it's also him operating on a different frequency than he normally does he talks a little faster he has a certain level of like charisma you can see him being charming in places and then you know but there's like an edge or there's a dead eye uh, thing going on he is really just frighteningly good in this and and he is frightening and, and yes and, uh... <sighs> <laughs> uh, you know the end Holy of this shit the last third of the movie whoa yeah yeah he uh i mean there's essentially a a a, a montage i mean i guess we, we do spoilers here oh, right? yeah we're just, yeah yeah, yeah we're totally spoiling it's all this, yeah this. the rape geez well the rape for one thing which is just i i don't know how oh. you felt about it but it's like, uh it was a little long they kind of went a little long with it but yeah yeah Oof. i also you know i i think if and I would say this about um, the other one of the other movies we're, we're going to discuss is there's almost a lack of tension in the film because of how bad he is that Sean Penn has no reason to stay with him other than just that basic like I want a dad. Yeah, feeling. yeah, that's true. But he goes so to the dark side. He is so revealed that in fact, as a father, he has nothing to offer. Um, yeah, because, because he's a sociopath. He, he is, is absolutely. So yep. he's incapable of love mm-hmm. and and proves that like beyond any kind of, you know, shadow of a doubt, his, his desire for self-preservation is so great that there's essentially like a good fella style montage. Of near people the end just of the getting film. killed. Yes. People just, they just like dig graves and then walk people out and dig yep. graves, and walk people out. And, uh, and, and, you know, the film kind of holds the police at a distance for a lot of the film. Yes. Um, you know, there's a grand jury, but you don't know, you know, the extent of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so it does exist in this 
world that I, again, what I like about these kind of uh, crime family stories is, is that there are cops, but they tend to just cause problems and, and complicate things. Yeah. Um, I would say at the end of this film, it does kind of make a, a gesture towards law and order at the end True. of the film. It, it mm-hmm. just kind of goes, no, actually, you know, you should just be a good law and order citizen. And, and, and yeah, yeah. Actually, test audiences had issues with the ending as well. I guess they wanted, uh, you know, Sean Penn holds the gun and he's like, I'm not you. And he, so he doesn't kill the father, even though, and we're doing spoilers. I mean, his brother has been murdered. Uh, his girlfriend has been murdered. He was almost murdered, you know, by his old man or on his old man's word, essentially. And, um, you know, all the test audiences were hoping for a death wish kind of thing, like, oh, he should have just pulled the trigger. And it really, it wouldn't have worked, but they did, there was a little bit of pushback on the kind of right turn a little bit. Well, and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more later, but I do understand the impulse. I'm never really pleased when the end of a story is and then the good guy kills the bad guy. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And that and that solves the problem. I know. Yeah, um, it's a little too black hat, white hat, you know, very yeah. simplistic, stereotypical. Yeah. Western, even though Westerns are complex. So, yeah. But yeah, I'm never I mean, I will. I enjoy plenty of movies in this way. Oh, yeah, but, totally. But I'm never thrilled when the idea at the heart of it turns out to be. Oh, uh, isn't it good that good guys have better aim than bad guys? Um, <laughs> I like how you put that, Jordan. That's perfect. Well, well, yeah. it's true. You know, like um, yeah. talk about Sean Penn, uh, a great. Oh my God, the, you'll you'll know the title. Um, Irish Mob. Uh, uh, State, of, State Grace. of Grace. State of Grace. Yeah, yeah. State of Grace oh, yeah, we the, talked about that on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It has the exact same problem of of like, well, we sure do seem to be like in a in a real pickle. I don't know how we end this movie. Maybe <laughs> maybe Sean Penn, if he was able to kill eight guys in a gunfight, we could just we could all go home. We could just yeah. Yeah. Um, Sean Penn with the most obviously undercover cop haircut of all time. <laughs> but I enjoy uh, the hell out of the movie still. But uh, yes. I do too. I also yeah. say that, and if we didn't talk about this the first time, that I saw this that movie when I was pretty young and I was completely blown away when it was revealed that Sean Penn was a was an undercover cop. I was like, what? <laughs> um, oh, that's so funny. But um, anyway, that's, you know, it's, it's still like this movie, it, it gets to that idea of like, it doesn't linger in it, but you do see why else, what is Sean Penn supposed to go out and get a job? Like, mm-hmm. and I do think at the end of the movie, they kind of say, yeah, that's probably what he should do is just go out and get a job and join the world and marry, <laughs> uh, yes. marry Stuart Masterson. And, and, and the idea that like, not a lot has been learned by the, I mean, his brother is dead. He is so messed up. This is most of his friends are dead. This is a bad bad sad ending that they only sort of try and uh fix by having him point to his dad on a witness stand and and, um so i do get why test audiences weren't pleased even if their solution uh, i'm not sure it's a whole lot i don't agree with that but but yeah i i can say it's a little maybe abrupt or narratively we want to know more about what what is going to happen with this kid but overall i think nicholas kazan did a really good job with the script um, the teenagers, some of their conversations early on in the movie feel like teenagers talking mm-hmm. and not, you know, like 35 year olds, uh, which is refreshing. I remember you talking about when the first time you saw this and the sequence where he sees Mary Stuart Masterson and you can just tell like, oh, he's in love with this girl. Like 
um, just how effective and natural that scene was. No, I, it is, it's still, the movie is great. And I'm not knocking it when I say, I think the opening uh, of Sean Penn driving around and seeing her and yes. coming up and talking to her might be my favorite part of the movie. I agree. It just feels very organic. Yeah. Also, and I'm not knocking the very, very adorable uh, Mary Stuart Mashon when I say this time watching, I really, uh, I was like, oh, I think I would have, her friend's really cute too. So I just yeah. want to say shout out, <laughs> shout out to that friend who only got like one line yes. in the film because I think that would have been, I would have been Sean Penn's friend going, hey, what about yeah. that girl? <laughs> um, but no, they're all great. Um, again, it's just, it's so overstuffed. Sometimes, particularly in this era of of filmmaking, there were casting directors who I don't know if they had an embarrassment of riches or they were just really good at their jobs, but you just go, Oh my God, you like Kiefer Sutherland. I guess he had, is this his first movie? It's gotta be very close to it. Um, he certainly wasn't a star yet. Cause he, no, he's like, no, he wasn't. He's like third banana in the gang. So like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. And this is one where I think Sean just emerged from that pack where you're like, this is going to be like the actor, or that's mm. what I think Eber wrote again, as he said, of the young actors, it's him. But we had so many great character actors in this group that just show up for a yes. little bit in the movie. Yeah. And there's, you know, we already called out a few of them, but um, Walken's gang also has like, just even if they aren't given a lot of lines, uh, his brother, who he's introduced as Sean Penn's uncle, and then it doesn't act like it at all. Mm -hmm. um he's got a great face um the guy who kind of is the killer of the group who's uh who holds the guy underwater in one part he's got a yes. great face. some good mugs in the movie yeah um, I, I like when david strathairn is really great in the movie and yeah. yeah and and i yeah it feels like i mean it's pennsylvania which is a different part of the country but it just has a great um, you know, that they 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 steal tractors. That is their big I know. And we do see like, you know, the Amish. We see, yeah, a vehicle go by. Yes. So yeah. one of those crimes you never talk about, but actually I think it was yesterday or the day before in Los Angeles or in City of Industry, which is right outside of Los Angeles, police found a uh, a warehouse full of like a hundred stolen tractors. Wow. Um, yeah, like a major bus. They they had traced two tractors to this warehouse and thought they were just going to find two stolen tractors and instead found, I guess, the the hub of a massive uh, wow. tractor theft ring. So the the, the, uh, the crime is alive and well, I guess you would say. Yeah. Who's the new Bruce Johnston gang? Essentially. That's right. Yeah, we don't know. Don't yes. Know. Well, next we have our first of two films from 2010 that premiered one day apart at the Sundance Film Festival and were released one week apart theatrically six months later, written and directed by Australian filmmaker David Michaud in his feature filmmaking debut. Animal Kingdom was inspired by Melbourne Victoria's Pettengill criminal family who were put on trial and acquitted in 1991 for the murder of two cops in 1988. Oscar nominated for Best Supporting Actress for its Santa turned by Jackie Weaver as matriarch Janine Smurf Cody at the start of the film, her 17-year-old grandson, Joshua, a.k.a. Jay, moves in following the overdose death of his mother, Smurf's estranged daughter. Mother of three volatile sons, Andrew, Craig, and Darren, and their family friend slash honorary bonus son, Baz, 
The Cody's are a crime family who quickly bring Jay into the fold, but eventually he must decide what side he will be on when the bodies start falling. Starring Ben Mendelsohn, Joel Edgerton, Guy Pierce, Luke Ford, Sullivan Stapleton. It's such a great film. So talk to me about Animal Kingdom. Uh, Animal Kingdom is a great movie. It yeah. is a bummer. Um, it is. Yes. It's <laughs> these were not happy films, Jordan. No, 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 these weren't. Uh, this is a, you know, um, there is a, a movement sometimes on, in left wing politics of, of the call to abolish the family. And this is a movie that sits in the canon of abolish the family. <laughs> um, and, you know, their their argument is uh, often put as if you think, but I love my family, then you need to understand you're one of the lucky ones. Because, mm-hmm. you know, how many crimes are crimes of the family? Um, and, it, you know, any, you know, any of the horrible crimes of life that we want to talk about, most of them happen inside of families. And yeah. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that is a political position people take sometimes. And this is a movie that whether it means to or not advocates for that, for that position, mm-hmm. because in this world, family serves as nothing um, because there's no, again, we we're talking at the beginning of this that there is love and there is is duty that the families bring to you. This family, it's just duty. You know, they have a little bit of emotion when one of their family members is killed, but it's my God, yeah. How many a, bodies? Like it's people get knocked off in this thing really, really quickly, which I guess was indicative of the era that um, David Michaud was writing, and he had been. Um, originally from Sydney, Australia, and then like for college or when he was a little bit older, moved to Melbourne, which he said in the 1980s, and it took a while to get out of it It was kind of the Wild West. There were shootings, bank robberies, the um, robbery team of cops was killing people at an alarming rate. And there was just so much true crime stuff happening in the world. And yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's a, I've talked, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast, but it's something that really interests me is there's a type of novel that's very difficult to adapt. And that is a novel that has a passive observing protagonist. Oh, that's a really good observation. Cause that's Jay essentially. Well, it's Jay. And this is, uh, you know, I say it about um, the, uh, the secret history by Donna Tartt is okay, a, sure. a book that a lot of people have tried to adapt and failed. And I've always felt that it's probably at least in part because the protagonist that Richard is, um, is, is very passive in this way. Uh, frankly, the great Gatsby is the same. And yeah. Yeah. Nick Carraway is just kind of there to report. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. N- nobody reads that book because they love Nick Carraway. They might no. love his observations <laughs> or something, but it's his yeah. actions are, are there as mm-hmm. a camera of sorts. And, and Jay, you know, it's a great performance um, where he has to do a lot of very interiorized acting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a little, you know, I, I I find it a little frustrating in points where you're just like, okay, buddy, like, like come on, just say yeah. something. And then I he doesn't. Know. I'm not putting the actor down at all. I just, I think I, it's just, he is such a passive protagonist that it gets frustrating yeah, to watch him. You parts. can see that much um just alpha male activity is just kind of it's it's overwhelming. Um one thing that I think this did drive home it is like a Greek <laughs> tragedy you have this really improper a little way too intimate relationship going on with the mom with her grown sons, you know, so they're all very 
well, not all of them, but some of them were very sexualized, especially the Sullivan Stapleton um, character who, you know, is like not wearing a shirt a lot and she's kissing him on the lips and it's lingering and it's, it's creepy. And he's in this environment where he is sort of the, um, you know, the one that would get swallowed up by the herd or killed essentially. Mm. And that is one thing that I think was kind of missing in the television show, which I actually enjoyed. I watched the entire run of the series. It just ended last night. Um, Finally, the Jay character really became sort of evil and, you know, spoilers again, uh, takes on and starts murdering people in the last few seasons of the show. He just becomes like diabolical in his quest for vengeance of this family that shut his mom out. And so I think maybe there is a happy medium. Like you mm-hmm. have Jay in this, who's just sort of watching people like manhandle his girlfriend and, and get all creepy. And then you have um, what happened to Jay in the American version, which Michaud is involved in, of course. Um, but yeah, it is a little bit frustrating there for sure. <laughs> um, I meant, I meant to do this at the top of the show and, and then I, I forgot, but I, are you familiar with the uh, poem, this be the verse by Philip Larkin? No. Do you have it? Do you want to read it? I do. I will read it. Perfect. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. I couldn't remember the name of the poem, but once it started with, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, I'm like, yes, I know that poem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's perfect for this it is perfect. episode. Good yes, job, Jordan. Thank you. Uh, particularly, I think, out of all of them, this film, because um, it is also interesting uh, that both of, uh, there's sort of a, a man comes to town element, particularly in, in these two movies, the first two which is that, you know, um, this isn't, we're not coming in on a static situation. We're coming in on somebody rejoining a family, Yeah. Uh, which I have to say, I also uh, do in uh, Last King of California. Um, and- yes. Yeah. I actually was wondering when I rewatched this, I had not seen Animal Kingdom since it had come out. I reviewed it. I loved it, but it'd been, you know, over 10 years. And so when I watched it this time, I was thinking and kind of comparing it to your novel and wondering if you watched it or sought any inspiration at all, just in that little element. I didn't mean to, I hadn't seen this movie in a really long time. either. Uh, But when I watched it, particularly the fact that um, Tyler, the main character of my book's mother is also uh, addicted to opiates. Um, Oh yeah. I guess I didn't put that together. That's, that's not what drives him into the arms of his criminal family. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is, I will say that having watched animal kingdom now, it is, a very similar um uh, setup so uh you that's know, interesting that, yeah that's art for you i guess but um yeah, yeah I, I didn't mean for it to be that similar but um that's just again that's art for you that's but, about uh, as similar as they get though they're very uh, very different yes. oh yeah for sure <laughs> i mean i think you know the the other uh you know i i complain about uh jay's um being passive uh a lot of last game california is about tyler beginning in a place like that i i like that that journey of a character yes from passive yes. to active mm-hmm. um you see it in she shotgun as well um absolutely oh i love but, that uh, book 
Yes. But, um, mm-hmm. but Jay is, is so repressed through so much of the film mm-hmm. that, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about this. We're not going through the plot, really. It's the plot is, I mean, the, the first, and I had not seen this movie since, I think you're right, since 2010. Um, the first big twist made me gasp. I had forgotten that it occurred. Um, the the murder of the first brother by the police. Um, yeah, that's shocking. I was I couldn't remember which one went or how fast it happened, but yeah, it is. It's very shocking. Yeah, and um, uh, but after that, the movie is just kind of watching the slow tumble of a family that that um, you know we never see them as armed robbers. We only see photos of them in the opening credits. This is just a family that has made a decision, a very, very bad decision that they are going to take on the state yep. um, in, in a in a blood feud, which mm-hmm. in like a uh, winner's bone. And I can't, you know, Blake could tell us about how these kind of family things work in Australia. Um, you need to find another family to get to a blood feud with. You do not get to a blood feud with the state because you cannot and will you not win. You cannot win. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another thing Michaud is talking about in the 80s that would happen is, um, I guess, you know, I think they call them cowboys. Essentially, the police were just uh, shooting people and there were so many robberies and things happening. And he said also there were a lot of revenge killings. So like, um, you know, it would be one and then just dominoes and you all of a sudden at nice restaurants, people are just getting gunned down. And he said it was really just a wild time in Melbourne, according to David Michaud. He worked on the script. That's one observation I noticed this time is you really feel like you are wading into a fully developed world. Like mm-hmm. these people just feel like, you know, actual human beings. They all have very di- different personalities. You can figure out like who is who. It's really thorough. And it's probably because he worked on that script off and on in some capacity since he was about 18. I think he said it was um, eight or nine years. He had wow. Jackie Weaver kind of like committed six years before it happened. Uh, he was friends with Joel Edgerton. So he wrote that for him. Guy Pierce was like his first choice. He also wrote the Ben Mendelssohn character for Ben Mendelssohn. So, I mean, this was in development in various stages for a really long time. And you can tell that for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, you know, doing a tremendous amount of backstory and then deleting a lot of it. Is, yes. Yeah. It stays. I don't know. Uh, I, I have found that in my work that if you write out a big uh, backstory and then delete it, you will have created the rest of the work with that assumption. And then having removed it, the audience can sense it is real. That's even a if good way to put it. it. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense. We have gone pretty far into this conversation without mentioning Ben Mendelsohn and how fucking great. Oh, my God. I am team cast Ben Mendelsohn in everything. I think he's one of our greatest actors. Yeah, I uh, I guess this was the first thing I saw him in. The first thing I I remember really seeing him in is is startup. Um, oh, yeah. Know. Forgot about that one. Yeah. Tremendous movie. Um, I really thought uh, Jack O'Connell after watching that movie, I thought Jack O'Connell was going to be a really big star and i don't know what's happened to him uh, mm-hmm. he's tremendous but mendelson i don't know if he's ever gotten to play like um a nice fella who loves his wife and, and <laughs> goes to work and stuff I know. Um, I, i'd like to see him try it but like you know uh he plays a guy who is scary uh scary yeah while looking like a glass of milk um 
you know, that uh, he is just yeah. so frightening. And the the murder that we watch him commit on screen in this one is about as horrific a murder as um, for how quiet it is. Um, yep. Oh, my God. Yes. And just, it, it, most most of the work is done by his 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 brother's very weak pleadings. Yeah. Um, and But even the fact that his brother, who is much larger than him. Yep. Uh, is afraid to stop him and kind of makes even like a gesture, a very brother-like gesture of kind of swatting at him and then jumping back is yep. all he will do to save a teenage girl who's just being murdered in front of his eyes for no, mm-hmm. by the way, no good reason. Yep. No real reason. He was worried that she knew too much. Essentially. It's kind of like the end of at close range. Also you're dealing with Mendelssohn's character is mentally ill. Uh, he's sociopath of course, but he's also, there's some mental stuff yeah. that was fleshed out more in the American version of animal yeah. kingdom that the mom was kind of trying to medicate him. I will mm-hmm. say, um, you know, we find out like Jackie Weaver is the matriarch and she becomes very scary by the end of the film. But in the American version, uh, Ellen Barkin is scary as fuck right away. Like you see her being sort of the, the woman behind it all. And I thought that was an interesting uh, difference when they made that jump. It's a, um, you know, because you're right, when I was rewatching this film, which I hadn't seen in so many years, I was like, oh, I thought she was like the matriarch. I thought she made all yes. the moves. Yeah. And it's really not until fairly late no. in the film that she takes it. I think the difference is, is that with, with this actress... Um, She's softer it, a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can feel that Ellen Barkin is obviously like... Yeah, yeah you don't fuck with Ellen you Barkin. You don't fuck with yeah. Ellen Barkin. And, like, uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's probably also, you know... TV shows, I always feel like get the twists out of the way early, and, and yeah, especially in a world like where the, a woman has already been nominated for this role for being the big evil matriarch. It's yeah, hard to like sit on like, that. Yeah, let's lean heavy heavily into that for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, it's 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 a good movie. It's it's a dark movie, and kind of a, to tie it back into at close range, I find the ending really unsatisfactory. It seems a bit convoluted and sudden i will say um the the sudden uh, machinations of how he's going to sort of play both sides against each other seems like i don't know it just it goes a little quickly and it's mm-hmm. a little um handled in kind of a cumbersome way i still like it i think it's, it's a little sudden um when he takes out his uncle at the end uh what he does and just you know uh, jackie weaver's reaction like I'm I'm fine with that, but I feel like getting there um, is is a little fast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and again, it's just I'm not sure what they are saying at the end of the day. They're saying, well, yes, if your uncle is a psychopath and he kills your girlfriend, I guess you ought to shoot him in the head. Um, yeah. Yeah. You you kind of think he couldn't really win with either. Now this one is different. Whereas at close range, you see like law is going to uh, win out. This one, yes, you don't really know. There's sort of this um, ambiguity that that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I, what I would say is I, I, I'm not sure I buy that that's where the movie ends. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay, so he's killed Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, you want to know. I almost was wondering if originally they thought about making a sequel. That was my first, when I watched this the first time, I thought, oh, are we going to follow Jay in the next one? That's what yeah. I was thinking. And and if it is just a he has left his passivity behind um, yeah. because he has taken this action, I don't know. 
I, yeah, yeah. I'm, it's a it's a very very good movie. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I just I found I find the that ending a little like okay. So he did. It's a great <laughs> shot, by the way. Again, the, the violence in this is so well done. Yeah, um, shocking. Yep. It, it's definitely they uh, they definitely do violence. Um, <laughs> yes. So. And they also do air supply and make you extremely uncomfortable. Ben Mendelsohn <laughs> looking at the teenage girl with air, air supply. I was reading an interview where they're like, you ruined air supply forever. And David Michaud is like, I don't think I did. I think Ben did. Yeah, it is a creepy, creepy moment. <laughs> creepy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, our second film from 2010 and the last film we're focusing on is director Deborah Granick's Winter's Bone, which won Sundance's Grand Jury Prize for Dramatic Film and garnered four Oscar nods, including one for its breakout star, Jennifer Lawrence, based on the 2006 novel by Daniel Woodrell and adapted by Deborah Granick and Anne Rossellini. In the film, Lawrence plays teenage Ree Dolly who lives with her mentally ill mother and the 12-year-old brother and six-year-old sister she's essentially raising in their rural, poverty-stricken Missouri Ozarks home. When her estranged father, a noted meth cook, jumps bail and has put the family home up as part of the bond, Ree must take it upon herself to locate her father in order to keep a roof over everyone's heads eventually getting her frightening, disinterested, meth-addicted uncle Teardrop, played by John Hawks, who also was Oscar-nominated for his performance, involved in her pursuit. The film feels as emotional and intense as it does achingly real and very, very authentic. But I'll let you start us off because it's a personal uh, film for you, for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I had forgotten this. I remembered it last night when I was rewatching the movie that when I kind of came out to Hollywood and I got my manager, uh, who's still my manager today, uh, and he asked me, like, what are you interested in doing? I mean, I was a, a fresh face, you know, right off the boat. Yeah. And he's like, uh, give me a list of things you're interested in doing. And I made him a list. And I don't remember everything was on the list, but I remember the top two things. Uh, the second from the top was a BBC show called House of Cards that I thought I love that series, yeah. Which I thought would make a good TV show. <laughs> you were America. on top of that, yeah. And the other one was uh, I, I thought Winter's Bone should be a movie. Wow! And look at you. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, both of them were already kind of in production uh, yep. by the time that that happened. So, you know, I I think that, like I said, I think that. Um, Winter's Bone is the the best crime novel the last 20, 25 years. I think it, it's a perfect story in mm-hmm. a way that um, neither of these other two movies are perfect stories, in which I mean uh, there is a, a physical goal that mm-hmm. she must accomplish that stands at the absolute crossroads of, of two completely contradictory forces that rule her life, which again, in this case, is honor and love she has mm-hmm. to protect her family and respect the laws that create you know the, this clan system to operate and function uh, yep. outside of the law as uh you know as as uh as bob dylan says to live outside the law you must be honest and this is a movie unlike the other two that takes that idea uh seriously um and and examines the idea that again you know i said i was gonna bring up antigone daniel Woodrell says he wasn't thinking of antigone uh, when he wrote this, but it is very similar. Antigone is a woman who chooses to bury her brother against the orders of the king. Again, in this perfect conflict of, of you know, uh, love and, and duty, um, and and 
Reed Dolly is given this choice that is, again, that kind of stands at the heart of these systems. I, mean, I don't want to over complement the, the, the clan-based criminal system. There's a contradiction at the heart of them that the, yeah. that in fact, the duty and the love are in opposition to them. And what you see both through Reed Dolly and then Teardrop in very different ways is that they can no longer tolerate this contradiction. Um, and it comes out of them in very, very different ways. I will say, I think that this is a pretty good adaptation of a genius level novel. Okay. Um, I think, especially the, watching it this time, uh, and look, I, some of this might be sour grapes and I will own that. They, they, they make choices that I think soften, uh, re quite a bit. Um, and they, the direction, I don't know, like it's. I feel like uh, Granick's best movie in my eyes is Leave No Trace, which came yeah. out in 2018. I don't know if you saw it. It's one of the best films of 2018. Ben Foster, I think, is one of our greatest actors. Mm. And he plays a dad. You have a strong young female character in that. I feel like that was more concrete. And mm. um, this, I, I think, is, you know, it's an excellent film. Don't get me wrong. But I do feel like the first hour, kind of meanders a little too much and gets a little repetitive and some of the uh characters that we meet i want to spend e either more time with or get to know them a little better um she sort of goes from one place to another i love the idea of this um, headstrong girl who has a mission and she she knows she needs to do this um she can't take no for an answer and she keeps going but I do think it takes a while for it to really start cooking. And I think it does when you get um, teardrop involved. And one link I noticed watching these in quicker succession was just like Ben Mendelsohn is, you know, if you saw him on the street, he's not like the biggest guy. Um, you have John Hawks. Um, you have these people who are just by virtue of their talent and how they embody these characters just scare the living daylights out of you. And you would not expect them to be this terrifying kind of like Chris Walken, I guess you can put them all three together. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember, and I, I love John Hawks in, in Deadwood. Um, oh yeah. I've known John Hawks or who he was since um, I was a teenager when he was in a very, very weird butthole surfers movie. Uh, directed by Alex Winter called Welcome to Texas. Um, <laughs> and I was pretty disappointed when I heard he got cast as Uncle Teardrop. Uncle Teardrop oh, wow. yeah. is is an absolutely terrifying character. I understand mm -hmm. why they they made these choices, but um in the in the book, half of his uh face is melted from a mess oh, wow. bad. And he does have literal teardrops tattooed down his face. And there's a great line about how you know you got those from doing things that didn't weren't worth talking about when you were in prison um and like that's why people are terrified of, of teardrop is because he has murders tattooed on his face that he is that is who teardrop is and there is a lot of richness to these characters that kind of gets got left on the cutting room floor i'm afraid um you know one of the big ones is uh they cut out the fact that dolly is uh or that uh, re is queer and oh, is in, okay and is in love with her best friend, the uh, the the character with the child. You know, saying that, you can maybe see that possibly Jennifer Lawrence is playing with that a little bit. But yeah, it is completely left out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's just, uh, I mean, I know what you mean. To me, they don't quite hit because on 
they they say it in this, but it, it doesn't hit the same way because she kind of uh, you're right. She floats a lot in the beginning of the book. She yeah. does things that aren't on target. And what I love about this novel is that Daniel Ladrell, who's written many other very good books, but they are more literary. This time he had that idea that is just a perfect idea that by page six, you're like, oh, my God, she has to either find her father or lose the house. And yeah. to find her father, Talk she must violate space. the codes that that surround them. And, you know, they really lay it out a lot better, I think, in the book. And I get, you know, you don't want to just have a lot of exposition about about rules to me. And, and it's in the movie It, it is um, that. That thing she says at the beginning of never, you know, the her younger brother's looking at the neighbors cutting yeah. up a deer. Never ask for something that ought to be offered. Yes. Yep. And that's one of those things Perfect. I never never realized was a truth of my life until I heard it in that movie. And I was like, oh, yes, I, the, the Ozarks aren't the South. They are a different place. Yeah. And and that is a rule of the Ozarks that once said, I, I understood it completely. It's like, yes, I did never. too. Actually, growing up in Minnesota, it, it kind oh, of felt. It's, it's a different yeah. kind of, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the, in, the, in the book, she doesn't have a little brother and a little sister. She has two little brothers. And okay. her fear for them is very specific, which is that they are young and they are still alive to joy and wonder. And all she wants is to stop them from becoming these, you know, pain ridden, violent men who have had to leave behind. That is really, that is a different read than what we get in the film. And I think it's very effective. I really want to read the book now. Yeah. yeah, Oh, I, I, it's, it's beautifully written. It is. um, Mm -hmm. It's such a great book. And, And, and again, to me, and this is just my personal taste. I'm not is is I like perfect stories like this. Uh, the other two films, which are great films, are meandering. This one, uh, just on a story level, this is what I like. Is is she has a goal? You know when the the thing is over mm-hmm. um, because she achieves her goal, and then you know. Um, yeah, get in, tell the story, get out, get out, and and again, it's it is the set decoration is wonderful. They're they're at Forsyth High School, which is about an hour from my hometown um the the cattle ranch or the cattle auction she goes to i believe is on the fairgrounds in springfield um uh shout out to uh willie wardlaw who is a a friend of my brother's uh who has a song in this movie when she goes to visit her friend and her friend's husband is listening to hardcore punk music uh that is um Oh, what's I have it pulled up here because it's uh, Willie Wardlaw and his band Backhoe Butchery. He has been in a lot of bands. Willie has, uh, oh, but wow. they so they found like authentic people. Uh, yeah. To, and again, I didn't grow up in the deep backwoods of the Ozarks, and I don't want to pretend that I did. But I, you know, I grew up in this world. The guy listening to hardcore thrash is more authentic than the people sitting around having a mountain jamboree. Um, okay, which is gotcha. You know. Um, I'm not saying that never happens. I'm just saying there's a lot more of of the former than the latter. Um, gotcha. But, you know, I think, yeah, and, and Jennifer Lawrence, you know, what she's doing. And, and the other thing where I think they really dropped the ball, and again, I understand maybe why they did it, is the beating she receives at the end of the film. Oh, uh, gosh. By, yeah. By, by the, the women. By the women, but by the great and should have also been nominated for an Oscar, Dale Dickey, um, who is just a, I, she has a new movie out where she's she's doing like a romantic comedy or something. It's supposed to be really good. 
Um, mm. But Dale Dickey has has played this role or some version of this forever. She is superb in this film. Um, yeah. But the beating that she receives in the book is much more severe, like much more severe. And what doesn't quite come across in the film is that it is that beating and the fact that like the women of the Ozarks are talking about it and talking about how those three bitch sisters stomped Reed Dolly instead of doing the right thing is what makes the end of the movie happen. It's not teardrop going out and being wild. It's, it's the fact oh, wow. okay. that she has shown up and in a, in a very good scene when she wakes up in the barn and that guy who plays thump is, uh, is just the, the faces in that, you know, they do Ooh. such a good job yeah. of the faces of the Ozark. I actually kind of got a little like, um, like emotional watching it just because those faces are going and, the, and and thump the guy. My grandfather was not an evil man, but like it made me think about that kind of old school power that does yeah. like that just those kind of guys who were just born big and therefore are just scarier than everybody else. That guy mm -hmm. has like three lines in the movie. He's terrifying. He's terrifying. Uh, yeah. But it is the fact that they, that they have, you know, leaned into this contradiction and are going to let a, a girl be turned out into the, into the woods with their family. And it's the fact that they're actually going to lose power and respect amongst all the other clans by, by the way people are talking. It's what makes the end of the film or the end of the story happen. And so I feel like the, the films that takes a little bit from her. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah it, which is surprising. Yeah. Because watching this, it feels like, well, okay, maybe they're just scared of uncle teardrop. The, that's or, how it plays. Yeah. And, and a little ashamed, like a little both. Yeah, but like it, it really mostly is, teardrop. <laughs> it's like there's a scene in this where the 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 neighbor across the way comes over and like gives her pills. And yes, in the in the book, it's made a lot more clear that like um, that, that woman and other women like see that. I mean, she's beat up. She spends a whole last part of the novel like sort of in a kind of narcotic haze, oh, and wow. and she's like been very badly beaten. And you know, in this in the movie, by the end of it, they kind of just give her a. Like a little, little purple smudge under her eye, but she's yeah, supposed to and just, the bloody lip, yep, and the bloody lip. But like, um, so they sort of lose that, and and I, I guess I'm just the other thing that I don't think they hit at the end of the film is that Uncle Teardrop's going to die at the end of the film. He is okay because he says earlier, yeah, "Don't tell me who." Yeah, yes, um, in the in the book i'm just spoiling the book for everyone but uh, in the book when that uh the bounty hunter at the end of the film comes over and gives her cash he says something to the effect of well when that sleepy-eyed bastard paid off his bond and there is a character in the book and this is i i think i read the book three or four times before i noticed this there is a character named like sleepy johnson who is described as like it's not exactly okay. that. It's something like so that. So it's obviously he's the dude. He's yep. the dude who who bailed yeah. him out and then killed him. Wow. And so it's in that moment, Uncle Teardrop now no. knows who did that it. That does and, not play the same way at all. Wow. No. And, and then at the end, she's sitting on the steps and she's with her kids. And, and it it should be she's like realizing she's watching because now he's going to go kill this guy who did it. Yeah. And then he will be killed. Like yeah. that is what is going to happen. And so again, it's like these kind of big operatic or Shakespearean or Greek tragedy stakes. I feel like the film undercuts at a lot of different steps. Mm -hmm. And and that's where if again, if I'm being sour grapes because I wish I'd gotten to do this. No, no, it sounds narratively far more um, compelling. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, you got to say they, they did make this movie for two million dollars. Yes. Yeah. And for what it is, I mean, it is a damn good movie. I I hung out with an old uh, film professor who's retired now that I had way back in the day. He was actually Bill Hader's uh, film professor as well for a little bit. Very cool. And um, in the 2010s, when he taught women in film co- courses, he always showed this movie and he said, you know, it played just super well, which you can see. I mean, for those narrative um, basic building blocks, if she has a goal, she needs to achieve it, then it's over. And, um, you know, it works super well on that front. But hearing what they left out and what they could have added to it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to read the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like if I would skip, yeah, it's in my top five okay. uh, crime novels of all time uh, wow, for me personally. Gotcha. Uh, it's, it's just, it's that thing that I'm always talking about of like, por qué no las dos? Yeah. Like, why, why not both? <laughs> why not both? Why can't you have a beautifully written novel that has like really deep things to say about a way of living and, and about what, again, the, these like bone deep themes of honor and love and mm-hmm. how they clash with each other. Um, and then also have a story that just clicks and that you immediately you're on page six and you're like, oh shit, this 70 year old girl's got to go into the, you know, the darkest parts of the Ozarks and face the most scary people that she knows, or her family will be put out um, into the, yeah. into the wilderness. And um, you know, yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a good movie. I like the movie. I own the Blu-ray. I watch it. Oh yeah. You know, fairly often um, again, just even just to see all the faces and the, and, and the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ambiance yeah you know um and and again i think the, uh, jennifer uh, lawrence is good uh john hawks is great and dale dickey is really great i think mm-hmm. uh in it and uh and it's just fun to watch but yeah th- those you know what great. Could have been, though. for sure well before i let you go are there any other films even if they don't relate to the crime family's topic or just anything you want to recommend fans check out if they're hoping to pregame for last king well, that's an interesting uh question um no i mean i think it's it stands on on its own i think you know these all these movies are, are good uh comparisons i think that uh tapping the source by kim nunn which is another one of my top crime novels um is very worth reading it, it's uh a surf noir um and it's about adopted cool. families or found okay. families uh it's sort of the invention of surf noir and uh you can't go wrong watching that and uh other than that just you know watch watch good movies read good books buy my book you know um yeah i would say do it <laughs> i definitely want people to buy my books but i would also say if if somebody has uh, seen winter's bone but not read the book then i would say go out and go out and give daniel Woodrell a little extra money for sure. Well, Jordan, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was a pleasure. It's always fun talking with you and like you bring poetry, you talk about Greek tragedy. I mean, you're just a man of many talents. So oh. I want to thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know me anytime. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting 
filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.